electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. I'm Dominic Chewin for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead on the show. As the market broadens out beyond just technology, there is one sector our market guest calls too compelling to ignore. He tells us which one and the names he's buying in that particular space. Plus, as the payment stocks start to report, there are two of them with an unusually attractive entry point. The analyst behind that statement is here to make her case and with how much upside she sees ahead for those stocks. And the FIFA Women's World Cup officially underway. The U.S. team playing their first game tonight will get you ready for the big event with a special three buys and a bail World Cup sponsors edition. Three stocks you can score with and one to put on the bench. But we begin with the markets right now and they are generally in the green And for the Dow Industrials, that's the real highlight these days, because I'm going to show you a green 48-point gain for the Dow, which currently sits at 35,273. The reason why it's important is because if it's green again today, positive, it would be 10 straight days in a row to the upside. That would be the longest winning streak for the Dow since August of 2017. That's how long it's been since a 10-day winning streak's been in place for the Dow. The S&P, 45-43 the last trade. They're up about eight points at the highs of the session We were up 20 points, up two at the lows, so kind of tilting a little bit more towards the lower end of that range, up about one quarter of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite floating just around unchanged, 14,064, the last trade there. The sector that's been an immense focus for many traders and investors this week, maybe no surprise, it's been the banks, financials overall, bank earnings at the end of last week into the beginning of this week has powered many of those names, both big banks and regional banks, towards some of the best levels they've seen in quite some time. The S&P regional bank ETF, the spider one, up 8% over the last week. The S&P Bank ETF itself, with the bigger ones, up about 7%. And the financial sector spider up 3% overall, encompassing not just them, but insurance names as well. So keep an eye on the financial sector, given everything we talk about with rates going into next week's big Fed rate meeting. And then the stock that's caused a good amount of spectacle and confusion, maybe we'll call it. Sirius XM Radio, it's down big, about 10%, a massive move higher yesterday on what some analysts and traders are calling a liquidity-driven run or so-called short squeeze. Much of the dynamic here has to do with some of the, at least, moves that we've seen in Sirius from a fundamental value standpoint against one of the companies that owns the majority of its shares, which is Liberty Media. There's been a certain kind of relative value arbitrage type trade that's played out alongside the big NASDAQ 100 rebalance that might have added some more events there, but still, Watch SiriusXM, especially because, according to FactSet, around 34% of its total float in terms of shares is actually held short. Again, people betting against. So watch that volatility trade in SiriusXM. Down big today, up big over the last, call it two or three weeks now at this stage. We'll watch that. Now, let's begin in the other side of things in Washington, D.C., with President Biden meeting tech executives at the White House. He is expected to speak within the hour. Eamon Javers is in Washington with what's on the agenda. Steve Kovac is tracking the companies that are involved. And then Steve Leisman has new data from CNBC's All-America Economic Survey about what this country's comfort level is with artificial intelligence. Uh, Eamon, we'll start with you in D.C. for the scene setter. Yeah, hey, Dom. Executives from seven major tech companies are at the White House today as President Biden announces voluntary commitments from them to help move forward to what the White House is calling a safe, secure and transparent development of AI technology. These new commitments include one that people will notice broadly, potentially, which is a push to put a digital watermark on AI generated audio and video. So it's clear when something has been faked. But the commitment that may have the biggest impact here is an effort to allow internal 
internal and external security testing of AI systems before they are released in an attempt to spot any harmful programs and make sure AI you know, doesn't spiral out of control Terminator style. Uh, the White House is walking a delicate line here, though, because they want to ensure the safety of AI technology, but they also have to make sure that these innovations are done here inside the United States. And so as a result, these new commitments are voluntary only, and they will not carry the force of law. But as Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said on CNBC this morning, this is just the first step in a longer process. Ultimately, uh, Congress will pass a law which will have teeth and penalties and enforcement. And that, of course, uh, will take some time. And so that's why we are saying, let's do this as a, as a first step. She said this is a bridge to regulation here. We expect to see the president making those remarks on AI to outline this agreement coming up very soon in the Roosevelt Room. Dom, back, right. to, back over to you. Okay, so, so Eamon, th this is a big deal because right now it's in essence the walk up, if you want to call it that, right, to this idea that there could be more broad ranging, wide sweeping type regulations around what's been a very early stage development for artificial intelligence. What exactly is the hope for what the conversation involves today with these big tech executives. Is there anything that groundbreaking maybe that's expected from these conversations? Well, look, I think the hope ultimately is that there's some sort of legal regime that comes out of Congress on all of this. And I think as you look at it right now, what we've got is a handshake deal between these tech companies and the White House. There's no force of law behind it at all. So for now, this is a very tentative and voluntary uh, regulatory regime that's being built around AI. We'll see if it works. And then, of course, what Raimondo said uh, on CNBC earlier today is the administration is working uh, with allies around the world. She mentioned uh, the Japanese, for example, uh, as one ally the United States is reaching out to here because this is going to be a global phenomenon. So regulation doesn't work necessarily if it's only domestic. So what they're doing is trying to start the process here in the United States and then reach out globally uh, and see what they can do to bring at least the sort of uh, democratic world, for lack of a better expression, into an AI regulating regime overall. And, and Eamon, one more quick point before we, we kind of move this conversation forward a little bit. China is always a big part of the discussion when it comes to artificial intelligence, the, the, the supercomputing arms race, if you will. Yeah. Uh, how much will that factor into to perhaps some of the administration's concerns about where the U.S. sits from a competitive standpoint against yeah. the world's second biggest economy and one that, by the way, we go back and forth against about who's the biggest supercomputing power in the world? Yeah, look, I mean, it's huge. I think you just put your finger exactly on it, right? I mean, China, obviously not a signatory to this. This event is not taking place in Beijing. It's taking place in Washington, D.C. So that has implications. So what the what the administration is trying to do is have this regulatory regime start to come into place, but not so intensely that it drives innovation out of the United States. They are very wary about China taking the lead in AI. That's something they absolutely do not want. Uh, the intelligence community doesn't want it. The White House doesn't want it for political and economic reasons. And so you can see them trying to struggle with that. Uh, but that's just the, the reality of the world that we live in, Don. All right, Eamon, stick around here. Let's bring into the conversation now uh, Steve Kovac, also Steve Leisman. Uh, Steve, there are a lot of companies here, but it doesn't sound like legislation <laughs> is any time, at any point, going to be very close in the offing. So when we talk about names like NVIDIA, which has been at the forefront of this, and of course, Microsoft, OpenAI, how exactly are these companies factoring in their future financial health, right. given this conversation happening right now? Yeah, exactly. And look, these, to be fair, these companies have been calling for regulation since the beginning of the year when we all started talking about AI and, and the buzz really ramped up. And so to Eamon's point, they're getting some of that here. They have this agreement with the White House, not enforceable, of course. But how does that figure in financially? Well, take a look at what some of these individual companies are trying to do. A lot of the regulatory ideas out there are saying, hey, let's look at your data sets. How are you training? What data are you using to train your AIs? Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, they don't want to show that. So as far when it comes to the, some of these common ideas of what these AIs are being trained on and, and some of the 
uh, deeper regulations that are being sought after, uh, they're actually kind of against it in, in a lot of ways. So, look, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, quote Senator Mark Warner, who came out with a really interesting statement right after this happened. I'll just read part of it right here. He said, while we often hear AI vendors talk about their commitment to security and safety, we have repeatedly seen the expedited release of products that are exploitable, prone to generating unreliable outputs, and susceptible to misuse. So basically saying we need to get some legislation out the door. If you want to be cynical and you would be justified, Dom, if you were cynical, they might not be able to do it. They can't even get child safety passed, let alone something like this. What, what, what's the I mean, these are all concerns, but but in your mind and through your reporting, what seems to be the bigger risk right now? Is it the idea that we could have generative AI creating things like deep fakes uh, you know, false, fake narratives, fake news, fake images, or, or is it this idea that these so-called large language <laughs> models that have to, quote unquote, scrape all of this data off the Internet, whether it's maybe personal data or, or consumption patterns and that sort of thing, is it the data privacy side of things or the idea that it could be used for something more nefarious? I, I think it's both, right? And the White House is clearly concerned about the deep fake issue, especially as we go into election and especially as we've already seen some examples of it. Remember that fake Pentagon AI generated picture of the Pentagon on fire sent markets dipping just a little bit. Just imagine that as we get into the heat of the election season on social media. You know, it's very clear that social media companies are not prepared for it. When it comes to the privacy and safety part of it. Look, I mean, we've been talking about these issues for years and years and years. The better part of a decade, zero pieces of legislation have been passed <laughs> to rein that in. So again, if you want to be cynical, you'd be justified in being cynical. This is the perfect way to bring in Steve Leisman into the conversation, because we now have an idea, Steve, of just how fearful or aware the public is about artificial intelligence. Yeah, and listening to Steve, I think the public might be right about this. While the tech industry and the stock market, you know, they're like, AI, sure, come on, let's do it. CNBC All-American Economic Survey says the public has deep concerns or what we're calling AI anxiety. 2016, when we last asked the question, 36% were comfortable with AI, 59% uncomfortable for a net negative rating of minus 23%. Now it's 2769 uncomfortable, so the net negative rating now is around 42%. So people have gotten more uncomfortable with it the more they have learned about it. Uh, unusually for almost any question we ask, every single demographic has a very, very large percentage who are uncomfortable with it. Take a look. Even the young, 42 percent, 55. And then as you go down the age spectrum, more and more, they're more and more uncomfortable with it, getting up to where people are 65 and older. They're 78 percent uncomfortable. And when we ask about the public facing side of AI, little acceptance. They don't like it on a customer service. They don't like it in diagnosing medical issues. And they really don't like it when it comes to driving vehicles. What do they think is going to happen? 21% say it'll make their job easier, 10% more difficult, 18% say it will replace them in their job, 49% may not be paying attention because they think it'll have no effect on their job. Um, I just want to ask Steve a question. Yes, by all means. Shoot, maybe Eamon knows the answer to this too. Because I asked AI how to make Americans more comfortable with it. And, 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 and that, that's very meta of you, by it, the way. Very meta. What, yeah. what it did is it said you can have an ethics board. But it said be very careful about using the data for predetermined outcomes. And one of the things AI brought up was this very nefarious example. If you have an AI that's programmed to make lending decisions, what stops you from putting racial data <laughs> oh, into nothing. that? And they don't want to disclose this. Exactly. Now, Eamon, would, would the government do anything about that? Would, the, would this law say I think, you can't do that? I think the government eventually would want to do something about that. I think banking and financial regulators might have a view into that, but I don't think there's anything uh, on the on the books right now that would affect that. I mean, other than sort of general non-discrimination uh, statutes relating to banking, but there's nothing in this agreement uh, that's binding legally, right? So this is just the tech companies coming to the White House today and saying, hey, look, we're going to agree to all these things. Uh, they're all aware of all of the business and social implications of this. Uh, the question is, when the rubber meets the road, will the, the government have the right to force these details out of these companies and into the public domain? And we just don't know where that's they going should to have it. to though i mean that's the point right? right if you're creating 
basically but artificial competitive? In, but artificial right? I mean, intelligence competitive intelligence it, it is but artificial intelligence is in essence a very very sophisticated set of mm -hmm. algorithms instructions basically that kind of right. what if if then statements right that's what trading algorithms are if you make it artificial intelligence you have to program it eventually if it's true ai it learns in and of itself why can't you just say this is the constitution of the united states and here are the rules. Follow you, it. This is the prime for all the Star Trek fans out there. This is the prime directive, right? right? The prime directive is you do not violate the Constitution of the United States. But what if the prime directive that's programmed is to make money? Okay, well, that's a different it, Right, right. But that's, but that's different, though. But then you have to regulate it, right? That's the way you're going to program your algorithm. Say, go out and make as much money as you possibly can. Or in the case of the example, by the way, I want to emphasize the example that AI itself brought up, not my example. Um, which, by the way, maybe the, the, the uh, redlining rules would keep that from happening, but that's another story. Um, maybe the idea is that uh, if, you, if you regulate it, you get out in terms of the uh, competition, right? I mean, if I let you see my algorithm, what do I got? I got nothing. That's right. It's not about that's seeing the, the algorithm. That's the intelligence value. And I would just remind you, Dom, that in Star Trek, they did not have money. So I'm not sure you're not you I don't want to go full nerd on you, but just put that enough. out there. Yeah, but they were, just, they were just plain colonialists. Right. Everybody was. That's a yes. whole we're missing one important piece okay. here, and that's uh, the current regulators. We have the FTC already saying we're going to look at AI and apply the current laws. We're not going to wait for Congress to go ahead and say stuff. So when it comes to child privacy, we've already seen actions like that with the FTC against Amazon and child privacy, for example. So they are taking a look at this, at least on the regulatory front, uh, the, the law enforcement front. They, do, they feel like they have the authority to at least push the laws as they exist today, but it's very clear we need more. I will end on this, gentlemen. I will say this. I just had my car insurance repriced, and I was pitched the idea of letting them track me, right, to put one of those devices mm -hmm. in there, and it would save me X dollars. And I decided in my mind that it was not worth the X dollars mm -hmm. saved to have somebody tracking me. In a couple time. of years, in a couple of years, you're going to have to pay extra to not be tracked. Right. They'll flip it. There's the paradigm. All right. Steve Kovac, Steve Leisman, Eamon Javers. Fascinating discussion. It. I have to end the conversation with what? I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. <laughs> oh, live, look at you. Live long and prosper. Yes. Sorry, we can Dave, do. We can. can we'll I go can, full, can full nerd on this. There, we there go. you go. There you there go. Something is. like that. Right. All right. Anyway, Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, is sitting in on that meeting at the White House, and he'll be joining. He'll be joining closing bell overtime. In a first on CNBC interview, that's at 4 p.m. Eastern time today. So, again, Meta, obviously one of the big names associated with the metaverse, artificial intelligence, and everything else, they're going to be in the room. Meantime, the Dow is trying for a 10th straight day of gains, something that hasn't happened since August of 2017, when it ended the year up 25%. Now, for the year, the S&P 500 has climbed 18%, while the tech-heavier NASDAQ is up around 35%. So is it too late to get into that tech trade now? Our next guest says no, and he's turning to one tech-adjacent sector in particular that he calls too compelling to ignore. So joining me now is Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Jamie, always great to get your thoughts here. And this is interesting because for everybody who's been watching the markets and watching CNBC, they're well aware of just how much the run has been for tech and tech-related stocks where is there still value? It's all about healthcare, Dom. I mean, you know, tech and healthcare, the intersection of those two sectors cannot be ignored. There was so much innovation and so much R&D that happened during the pandemic, and we're just starting to see some of the pieces of it come to the marketplace. But in one, sec one particular area, medical devices. I mean, you have people voluntarily wearing con continuous glucose monitors. So companies like uh, Insulet or Dexcom. These are these are companies that are absolutely knocking out of the park. People are paying really close attention to their healthcare, and that is brought about by technology. All right. So J to me, Jamie. I think healthcare is the place. All right. Just stick with us for a second here. I, I want to get turn our attention now to uh, President Biden, who is now speaking and making remarks, really with regard to what's going on right now. We'll take you there right now. To underscore the responsibility in making sure that <clears throat> products that they are producing are safe and, uh, and making them public what they are and what they are. Since then, I met with some of America's top minds in technology to hear the range of perspectives and possibilities.
and risk of AI. Kamala can't be here because she's traveling to Florida, but she's met with civil society leaders to hear their concerns about the impacts on society and ways to protect the rights of Americans. Over the past year, my administration has taken action to guide responsible innovation. Last October, we introduced the first of its kind AI Bill of Rights. In February, I signed an executive order to direct agencies to protect the public from algorithms that discriminate. In May, we unveiled a new strategy to establish seven new AI research institutes to help drive breakthroughs in responsible AI intervention. And today, I'm pleased to announce that these seven companies have agreed to voluntary commitments for responsible innovation. These commitments, which uh, the companies will implement immediately, underscore three fundamental principles safety, security, and trust. First, the companies have an obligation to make sure their technology is safe before releasing it to the public. That means testing the capabilities of their systems, assessing their potential risk, and making the results of these assessments public. Second, companies must prioritize the security of their systems by safeguarding their models against cyber threats and managing the risk to our national security and sharing the best practices and industry standards that are, that are necessary. Third, the companies have a duty to earn the people's trust and empower users to make informed decisions labeling content that has been altered or AI generated, rooting out bias and discrimination, strengthening privacy protections, and shielding children from harm. And finally, companies have agreed to find ways for AI to help meet society's greatest challenges, from cancer to climate change, and invest in education and new jobs, to help students and workers prosper from the opportunities, and there are enormous opportunities of AI. These commitments are real and they're concrete. They're going to help fulfill, industry fulfill its fundamental obligation to Americans to develop safe, secure, and trustworthy technologies that benefit society and uphold our values and our shared values. Let me close with this. We'll see more technology change in the next 10 years or even in the next few years than we've seen in the last 50 years. That has been an astounding revelation to me, quite frankly. Artificial intelligence is going to transform the lives of people around the world. The group here will be critical in shepherding that innovation with responsibility and safety by design to earn the trust of Americans. And quite frankly, as I met with world leaders, all, 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 our, all the G7 is focusing on the same thing. Social media has shown us the harm that powerful technology can do without the right safeguards in place. And I've said at the State of the Union that Congress needs to pass bipartisan legislation to impose strict limits on personal data collection, ban targeted advertisements to kids, require companies to put health and safety first. But we must be clear-eyed and vigilant about the threats emerging of emerging technologies that can pose, don't have to, but can pose to our democracy and our values. Americans are seeing how advanced artificial intelligence and the pace of innovation have the power to disrupt jobs and industries. These commitments, these commitments are a promising step, but we have a lot more work to do together. Realizing the promise of AI by managing the risk is going to require some new laws, regulations, and oversight. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to continue to take executive action to help America lead the way toward responsible innovation. And we're going to work with both parties to develop appropriate legislation and regulation. I'm pleased that Leader Schumer and Leader Jeffries and others in the Congress are making this a top bipartisan priority. As we advance the agenda here at home, We'll lead the work with we'll lead work with our allies and partners on a common international framework to govern the development of AI. I think these leaders and I thank these leaders that are in the room with me today and their partnership, excuse me, and their commitments that they're making. This is a serious responsibility. We have to get it right. And there's enormous, enormous potential upside as well. So I want to thank you all. And uh, they're about to go down to a meeting, which I'll catch up with them later. So Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mr. President, can you tell us about the hacking of cabinet officials by China and the threshold of concern you have about that, sir? Ready? How are we getting these guys now? 
Okay, that was President Biden making some remarks, uh, trying to give us an idea, summarizing maybe a little bit of that meeting that he's had with top tech executives, uh, bringing up this idea that regulations need to be put in place to safeguard not just our national security, but also the safety of uh, Americans' personal data and their lives as well. Uh, I want to turn back now to to what's happening here with, with Jamie Cox over at Harris Financial. You had a chance to listen in on this. I know that you were talking about the intersection of tech and healthcare, and tech and healthcare is going to eventually, almost invariably, involve artificial intelligence, machine learning, large language models. Is there an investable angle in this with regard to how technology will at some point cross with healthcare via artificial intelligence? Dom, it's already happening. I mean, there's uh, Meta has created algorithms to predict protein folding. So if the, pre- the president actually referenced cancer research, and and that and Meta is already sort of doing it. Um, you know, protein folding will predict you know, you know, different strains of proteins and how they will react and create cancers in the body. And if you can predict the way a protein will fold, then you can create drugs or target therapies to be able to treat it. So w- this is already here, and, and basically we're going to be seeing the the benefits of it or investable benefits of it in the years to come. But it's not going to necessarily just accrue to a healthcare company or a drug company like a Pfizer. It can also accrue to a company like Meta. And so you're going to see, that's what I'm saying, it's the, the intersection of healthcare and, and technology is here to stay. And before we let you go, is there, a, is there a particular place within healthcare that you think is the most opportune place to be right now with regard to playing that tech ancillary trade? Medical devices. I mean, you know, the the device structure, cardiac care in particular, is is where you're going to see the most benefit. I believe. I mean, diabetes is sort of obvious, but cardiac care is 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 a little bit more complicated. And I think you'll see that particular area of medical devices be quite investable as we move forward. All right, Dexcom, Insulet, and Olympus Corp. Three of your top picks there. Jamie, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. You too. All right. Well, shares of American Express are down more than 3% right now, making it the worst performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average today. The payments giant beat on earnings but missed on revenues despite reporting a record number. It also reaffirmed its full-year guidance, or affirmed, if you want to call it that. Amex also says consumers are still spending with premium products, making up 70% of new accounts, while reservations on its Resi restaurant platform hit a quarterly high. But travel spending, while still strong, did fall 39% from the previous quarter, so on a sequential basis. Our next guest is calling this a, quote-unquote, slightly bumpy return to normalcy. Joining me now is Lisa Ellis. She covers payment stocks for Moffitt Nathanson. I mean, I tried to characterize it as best I could in 30 seconds. It's obviously a much more complex story than that, Lisa. But can you take us through why there is a little bit more pessimism in Amex stock today versus kind of what they told us as a more bullish macro narrative. Yeah, so you hit on it. Um, They missed on revenues, which is unusual. Uh, They've been beating actually quite handily the last several quarters. They missed by about 3%. It was driven by a sequential downtick in their bill business volumes. That's the spending volumes on cards, which came in at an 8% level in the quarter. Not a bad number on an absolute basis, but well below expectations. Last quarter, that number was 16, to give you a sense for it. And the weakness was really in two places. Travel, not that it was weak, it was still up 14% year on year. But last quarter, while we were lapping Omicron, it was up over 30%. So, you know, we're sort of returning to normalcy a bit on travel. You know, it's been this huge surge over the last six quarters. And then the other sort of unexpected area of softness was actually um, U.S. small businesses where their spending was only up about 2% year on year. That was the one that was, I think, a little bit of a head scratcher. But more positively, U.S. consumer spending, very healthy, 10 percent, and international spending, also very healthy, 17 percent. And the credit metrics at Amex continue to just be astoundingly strong. So a lot of good news in there. But the headline number was the miss on volumes and revenues, which is what's causing the weakness in the stock. Lisa, how much how much can we really glean about the maybe overall health of the American economy and the U.S. consumer with American Express. I, I, I ask this not because I'm, I'm knocking American Express, more so because American Express has a very different customer than many other banks and credit card issuers have. 
they're higher end and, and maybe a little bit not indicative of the broader economy. How much of that can we kind of take into account given the, the, the story that we have, the macro narrative in the U.S. that we have? Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, they, of course, skew very affluent. And actually, if anything, coming out of the pandemic have been gapping even further away from their peers in terms of the skew um, uh, toward the more affluent consumer. So they disproportionately reflect spending in the economy because, of course, affluent you know, consumers drive a dis disproportionate amount of spending. But they are only about 15% market share of all U.S. card volumes, and it skews very affluent. So probably their results are, are particularly the credit metrics, which are really strong, are an early indicator of this kind of bifurcation we're starting to see a bit. You know, earlier this week, Goldman Sachs's credit metrics came in really weak, where we might maybe are seeing a little bit of degradation in the lower, the middle income consumer, while the affluent consumer remains um, really healthy. Okay, and, and before we let you go, I want to kind of spin forward to what we're going to see here with some of the payments processing networks like Visa and MasterCard. Visa in particular, it's kind of on deck, if you will. So what's different between the payments processors and the credit card networks as opposed to a, an American Express, which is much more diversified in terms of its exposure? Yeah, so Visa and MasterCard are much more global in nature. Um, and so we are likely to see a little bit stronger volume growth there because internationally, there's still a lot stronger growth coming out of the pandemic. Um, uh, and uh, But on the flip side, they're a much broader representation of just the health of the overall economy. Their mid-quarter metrics have come in a little light, particularly for the U.S., where their volumes visa reports an inter-quarter number. It was only up about 6 or 7%. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, especially given Amex's results today, if the volume numbers for Visa and MasterCard, you know, maybe are come in a little bit at the lower end of expectations. But that said, I will point out in terms of the stocks, um, Visa and MasterCard have been sort of collateral damage uh, of the big shift and migration into these AI stocks this year. And, this, and Visa and MasterCard have derated about 10% despite beating on revenue and EPS for nine straight quarters. So um, even if we see a little bit of softness next week, we view this as a really, really attractive entry point, particularly into Visa, because their valuations you know, have, um, really for technical reasons, uh, have derated a bit this year. All right. Lisa Ellis, Moffat Nathanson says Visa is a top pick there. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Time now for this month's Sectornomics segment. We're taking a look at the materials sector, which has underperformed the broader S&P so far this year. And as we look ahead to the remainder of 2023, data from the folks over at Y Charts shows that the sector typically performs slightly better in the second half of the year than the first half. Now, over the last 10 years or so, the sector has gained an average of 2% during the first six months of the year, compared with an average gain of 6% during the last six months of the year. And in terms of the individual stocks that typically perform well during this time period, we've got names like Steel Dynamics, along with CF Industries and Corteva on the agriculture front. Plus, you've got copper and gold giant Freeport McMoran. But all that glitters isn't necessarily gold. Another big gold miner, Newmont, is among the biggest laggards during the second half of the year over the last 10 years on average. Joined by names like International Flavors and Fragrances, IFF. Also, Amcor and Ecolab as well. So as we move further into the second half, keep an eye on some of that historical perspective for that material sector. That's this month's Sectornomics. Well, coming up on the show, travelers are starting to rethink their spending, the travel hotspots that are feeling the pressure, and which stocks could benefit from the pullback. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update for this hour. The White House launching a new pandemic preparedness office. The office will take over the duties of the current COVID response team and will be charged with responding to biological threats or pathogens that could lead to a pandemic. It will be led by former military combat surgeon and retired Air Force General Dr. Paul Friedrichs. Amsterdam is looking to ban large cruise ships in an attempt to reduce mass tourism and the pollution that comes with it. The city has actively been trying to limit tourist numbers for some time. The Dutch capital would be following the lead of other high-profile European cities taking similar steps, including Barcelona and Venice. And it turns out that cheaper tickets still don't convince moviegoers to sit in front row seats. AMC is ending its pilot program that priced theater seats based on their view. The company says the program showed moviegoers still choose the seats they preferred even at higher prices. It's dropping the program to remain competitive with other theaters. Tom, back to you. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for the news update. Coming up on the show, beer, burritos, and bubbles. We are trading some of the companies that sponsor the U.S. women's national team. It's a World Cup edition of Three Buys and a Bail. It's coming up next. Keep it right here. The exchange is back in two. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Women's World Cup is officially underway, and we are looking for opportunities in some of the big names sponsoring Team USA. It's time now for three buys and a bail World Cup edition. Join me now with her take is CNBC contributor Victoria Green, the chief investment officer of G Squared Private Wealth. Uh, Victoria, this is a fantastic way to kind of get into this and talk about soccer. First up, let's talk Chipotle. Shares of the fast casual brand on a hot streak up more than 50 percent so far this year. It's set to report second quarter earnings next week. And analysts are expecting what else? Positive results. Wells Fargo calling it one of the best performing restaurants on the street. Is it Chipotle? Do you like it? Absolutely. Do not underestimate the power of the burrito. And they are doing a goal, bowls for goals uh, collaboration. They're one of the biggest sponsors of U.S. women's soccer. Uh, by the way, good luck to our ladies tonight. Team USA, 7 p.m. versus Vietnam. Should be a good opening win, I think. But going back to Chipotle, they're the best on the street. Absolutely. And fast casual. Uh, Bear just updated their price target on them to 2400 It's because they're so advanced. They pass their pricing on. Their menu is always changing. Their uh, chicken al pastor looks like a it was a big hit. We honestly believe their same sort of growth could be 7 to 9%, and they've been protecting their operating margin very, very well. I feel like their advancements in digital has been huge, and that's been one of the reasons they've moved forward more so than any other fast casual, because you can buy it on their app. You can go in the store. You can get it on third-party delivery, uh, and they even have good curbside pickup stuff. So easy to get your burrito and good food. All right. All I know is the Chipotle near me is always packed. Victoria. Oh, now, next up here, we got Coca-Cola. Shares are off about 2% so far this year, but Coke closed just short of its 52-week high in yesterday's trade. Coke is set to report next Wednesday, but rival PepsiCo posted better-than-expected results just a few days ago. Pepsi also hiked its full-year guidance on strong consumer demand. Victoria, will Coca-Cola be able to prove itself as the superior soda stock? 
Absolutely. And they are the pure play soda stock. You know, Pepsi has to rely on the snacks to get there. And they did well, but that does still bode well for Coke. And we think they're going to have their 15th straight EPS beat. They're just a strong company. Their brand power is phenomenal. And they've been also dabbling a little bit more into the alcoholic beverages, which is a wild card we feel like could generate more growth down the road. They just have a great brand presence globally. We think their EPS, the, the way they've done their pricing and the way that they've seen Coke Zero, I think Coke Zero grew like 8% last quarter. Um, they have this consistent growth. And so, yes, staples have been some under pressure, but I see Coca-Cola being able to defend their margins and all of that Russia stuff, all the geopolitical strife, that's been priced in for a year. It is what it is. They had to leave that market. That Band-Aid's gone and ripped off. So I think Coke has reset well, and they do have good growth trajectory going forward. All right. And finally, Victoria, Anheuser-Busch, the shares were down 10% over the past three months. As the company continues to deal with the fallout and backlash over a recent Bud Light campaign, featuring a transgender influencer. The boycott has already cost the beer its top spot in the U.S., but Victoria, you say that that's already priced into the stock and that this could be the entry point. Yeah, I know. I feel like I might get a lot of hate here. And please don't hate on me, but I do see Bud as a buy here. I think it is priced in. And it's not about the U.S. The U.S. is only about 28% of their overall revenues. They're a massive global stock. It's more about Central and South America, as well as uh, the emerging markets. And look, it is what it is. We expect 15% drop in volumes in the United States. And I think we are all aware some of those Bud Light drinkers are not coming back. And that was just an absolute parallel shift. But their brand is still strong. They still have a lot of global growth and we like what it's priced in and we see this more of a bottoming moment. We'd like to see it get above 60, but I think it's well on its way there. And I think they could surprise a little bit on the upside in the second half as I continue to see global growth elsewhere. And if the U.S. doesn't completely implode, we're already expecting it to be an anchor on them. So it's priced in and we see a little bit better value here. Okay. So there's your three buys. Those are the buys. Now here's the bail. AT&T. The shares hit a near 30-year low this week on Wall Street. And that report from the journal, basically that both AT&T Verizon left thousands of lead-covered cables in several locations across the U.S. has caused that downside. There have been a slew of analysts downgrading on both those telecom stocks following that story from the journal. AT&T shares down 20% so far this year. We're going to get results from the company on Wednesday before the opening bell. It's a bail, though. It is. It is. I know I'm recommending a bail at a 20, 30 year low, but a lot of that is, oh, the multiples are so attractive right now. But multiples are only attractive if the E part of the multiple stays consistent or growing and the earnings per share and the EBITDA number. And I, they have been beyond, take out the copper lead sheathing problem. Beyond that, they were already slowing down. You haven't seen this company actually be able to grow. It's facing big, big competition in its wireless from Verizon and T-Mobile. Its fiber and its wireline also looks like its growth trajectory is slowing. And so when you have those headwinds, and it's so much easier for consumers now to switch brands. You know, we used to remember those contracts used to be like $500 to break your cell phone contract. Those are long gone. It's super easy now to switch your plan. And AT&T has just not been able to consistently grow their wireless users and consistently grow their cash flows and, and their earnings. So I look at the stock and it's just this, this is just the, the camel that broke the straw that came broke the camel's back with this copper lead sheathing. And the estimates range from $10 billion to $43 billion of what the cost may be. And AT&T is absolutely the most exposed to the telecoms. So look, I get it. It's cheap. But I still see this as a value trap because you were already buying a stock that couldn't really grow its earnings. All right. Tell us what you really feel, Victoria Green on AT&T. Thank you very much. Uh, and good luck to our women's team here on the soccer tonight as well. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend watching it. All right. All right. Well, the FIFA Women's World Cup, yes, as you just heard, airing on Telemundo and also streaming on Peacock as well. So catch all that women's soccer slash football coverage on the networks of NBC and streaming. Still ahead on the show, consumers have been spending on experiences rather than goods. But as costs remain high, cracks are starting to emerge in places like travel. According to new CNBC data, the travel names that could take a hit coming up next. And speaking of experiences and spending on them, check out shares of Disney spiking on a scoop by CNBC.com's own Alex Sherman. He reports that ESPN has been in talks with both the NFL and the NBA. Disney shares are up more than 1% right now on those talks, by the way, that say that they could be looking at a possible minority interest in ESPN. Read that full story on CNBC.com. The exchange is back after this. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The era of revenge travel looks like it could be slowing down, according to new CNBC analysis. Sina Modi joins us now to kind of dig into that data. I thought all the airlines told us that it was just the middle innings of this travel surge. Well, it's starting to get the attention of economists because it's not just the airlines, Dom. Uh, look at what Torsten Slock at Apollo wrote this morning. Vacation demand in the U.S. is starting to soften. Experts really chalk that up to more Americans going overseas this summer, specifically Europe, with data well above 2019 levels for outbound travel, plus fewer foreign tourists coming to the U.S. If we looked at the routes like Shanghai to SFO, uh, Beijing to L. LAX, demand is down about 60 to 80 percent from pre-pandemic levels. Here's what that is all leading to. U.S. resort rates that have exploded over the last two years have fallen in hotspots like Maui, Miami, Florida Keys, the Jersey Shore, Diamond Rock Hospitality, Park Hotels, and Braemar. Those are the hotel REITs that have the most exposure to these summer resort destinations and have underperformed their peers and the broader S&P 500 so far this year. We spoke to John Bortz, who's the CEO of Pebble a hotel REIT. He tells CNBC that across his portfolio, average daily rate resorts are down about 30 percent from 2022 levels, but still up 70 percent from 2019. Meantime, some of the asset light hotel brands like Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, they have seen their stock prices jump 20 percent or even more this year. Bernstein reiterating its buy rating on Marriott today, citing its international presence. Earnings kick off next week. We'll be looking to Hilton and Wyndham on Wednesday. And then we got Royal Caribbean on Thursday, where, by the way, cruise fares anticipated to increase, Dom, over the next couple of months. All right. So I've got a couple of questions. I know that we have a limited amount. Of time. I've got to- too many to ask. But first of all, on the stock side of things, yeah. you mentioned the operators. These are the management companies that manage the hotels that REITs own the real estate yeah. of. Where has there been the better performance? Has it been in the real estate side of things, the people who own the properties themselves or the people who make the money by selling hotel rooms managing those properties? Great question. The hotel brands, Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, have outperformed the hotel real estate investment trusts. Part of it has to do with higher cost of capital, plus they're sitting on these properties that are in a lot of the destinations where prices are coming down. And the vacation hotspots, maybe some news you can use here, Seema. If I was to take a more discounted vacation from where it has been over the last couple of years, where would I go? Let me tell you, I just looked at the data, Dom. Uh, if you were looking to check into a hotel for $200 or less, take a look at Myrtle Beach, San Diego, Galveston, Texas. There are some under-the-radar beach, beachy destinations where you can actually find good value as prices go down. New York, not so much. Prices are going up. You don't have to sell me on Myrtle Beach. I'm a golfer, Seema. I'll there be down go. there all the time. Seema Modi. Thank you very much for the travel update there. We'll see you soon. Well, rapid Fed rate hikes have investors on the hunt for yield right now. And after a bumpy few years, they're now increasingly turning towards municipal bonds, one strategy has quietly gained steam in the space thanks to lower entry minimums. SMAs, or separately managed accounts, now make up 23% of municipal market ownership, outpacing mutual funds at 20%. That's according to data from J.P. Morgan. So what is so appealing about them? Let's bring in Jeff Johnson, Senior Vice President at Appleton Partners, for more on the state of the municipal market right now. Uh, as a former mutual fund guy, Jeff, I know the difference between them, but let's take us through why an SMA is more of a custom solution for a client as opposed to being in a mutual fund type product. Um, You're absolutely right. Um, SMAs have had extraordinary growth over the last three to four years. And, And I think it comes down to with an SMA, we're managing that individual or household's portfolio. The funds are not commingled with mutual fund, like a mutual fund or an ETF. So there's a lot more control. There's a lot more customization. And you had a year like last year with a lot of tax loss harvesting. We work very closely with clients to kind of customize that, determine the levels of, of losses they wanted to realize. Plus, there's transparency. You can look at your portfolio every day, see exactly what's in it. So SMAs have really um, become almost a trillion dollars in assets in a $4 trillion market. So it's very compelling. So, so Jeff, one of the big things, though, about, about SMAs as well, I, I mentioned this lower barriers to entry. You used to have to be a pretty high net worth individual with a big account size. I mean, forget hundreds of thousands. Sometimes it was in the millions of dollars to be able to put a customized portfolio of muni bonds together. What has it gotten down to now? 
So 250 is really kind of the minimum now. Um, and, and at Appleton, that's really what we start with. Um, you know, with our clientele, which are mostly advisors that are outsourcing their clients' municipal uh, investment to an SMA strategy. But there's there's reasons for that, and I think technology is a key part of it. There's there's very sophisticated trading systems, portfolio accounting systems, where we can buy a block of bonds and allocate it across hundreds and hundreds of portfolios knowing exactly what that's doing to the portfolio from a duration standpoint, from credit quality. So I would say technology has really helped us get those minimums lower, which becomes more attractive to a lot of investors. All right. So, so Jeff, let's pull the curtain back a little bit here. We don't want you to give away the store because you have a secret sauce, I'm sure, in picking these municipal bonds. But what exactly is the opportunity right now? What types of the bonds are you buying? Are there geographic locations specific types of bonds? Is it revenue bonds? Is it general obligation? What exactly is the tax advantage opportunity right now? Yeah, and, and I'd start, Dom, with the yield curve because um, credit selection and research, you know, we have an in-house research team which has to approve any bond that goes into a client's portfolio. But really the yield curve right now is the story in the municipal market because you've got an inverted yield curve. So bonds in two, three, four years in the municipal market are actually yielding more than 10-year bonds right now. This has never happened in the municipal market, ever. We've sometimes seen it in the very short end of the curve. But that lets us do a barbell approach to building out a portfolio where we can, where we can invest uh, monies in the short end of the curve, picking up that extra yield, but also going a little further out 10 to 15 years. So it's very compelling right now. You can get a 3% yield to maturity in an intermediate term municipal bond fund. Um, and that's an attractive entry point. We haven't seen those yields in quite some time. So it's, it's, it's compelling. Okay. And we've just got about a couple seconds left here. Do you get scared about what the Fed could do for the rest of the year? I don't. I don't at all. Because it's, it's pretty assured they'll go 25 basis points next week put you in the five and a quarter, 550 uh, Fed funds range. That's priced into the municipal market. Um, I think we're very close to the top of rates. And I think going forward, reinvestment risk becomes something that municipal investors have to think more about. You don't want to be sitting on all this cash and lose that opportunity to get the yields that we have right now in the market. So so we're, uh, you know, we're very constructive and we think it's a great time to, to enter the asset class. All right. Jeff Johnson at Appleton. Thank you very much for the Muni update there. We'll see you soon, sir. Thank you, Dom. All right. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, Huntington Bank shares reporting better than expected earnings, but guidance came in a bit light. Steven Steinauer, the CEO, will join to discuss those results coming up on Power Lunch. Keep it right here. We're back after this quick commercial break. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.